0: Hey there, it's Scary Parrish. Welcome back to the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast where we sometimes discuss camel fighting and leaky black. Kyle Boone is here with me and I suppose we'll start with the biggest news of the week, specifically that Pat Chambers is out at Penn State after nine seasons. It is the result of an internal investigation launched after allegations of inappropriate conduct that followed Former Penn State player Rasir Bolton publicly saying that Chambers once said the following to him, quote, I want to be a stress reliever for you. You can talk to me about anything. I need to get some of this pressure off you. I want to loosen the noose that's around your neck, end quote. Obviously, that's cringeworthy. But, you know, Pat Chambers, once these allegations surfaced, he subsequently apologized. Said he needed to listen more, learn a lot, which is something a lot of white men have said, um, you know, since the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis earlier this year. And I think he would have probably, Pat, survived that if that's where the story ended. But shortly after that story was told. New allegations surfaced, though exactly what the allegations involve remains unclear. Either way, it led to Pat Chambers offering his resignation earlier this week. So, Kyle, I guess let me ask you this. Are you surprised the Penn State job is now open in October 2020?
1: Yeah, when I, when I saw this news come down earlier this week, I was surprised. Um, it, it took me, you know, I guess it, it was a little bit jarring to see that come down, but I had almost forgotten uh, this entire incident. And, and maybe it's just because so much has happened in the past few months that it almost got buried. But yeah, it, I mean, you, you, you mentioned the allegations that were levied against him, um, the, the phrases that he used, the inappropriate conduct that was alleged that he committed and, um, and apparently the, the investigation that Penn State launched found that he he is, was essentially resigning for a separate incident. So I can't say I'm surprised. Um, you know, I guess in the moment I was surprised. But taking the full context into consideration, uh, the fact that Pat Chambers is no longer the, the coach at, at Penn State is, uh, is frankly not all that surprising. You know, he was 148 and 150 uh, since he was hired at Penn State in 2011 never made an NCAA tournament appearance in nine seasons now maybe they would have made the NCAA tournament last year but uh, yeah I I think uh, just uh, considering everything in terms of you know how successful or or lack of success that he found uh, coupled with the fact that some of the the recent troubles off the court I think uh, it shouldn't be shouldn't be that surprising. So when the first
0: allegation surfaced, Norlander and I actually talked about it on this podcast and like, listen, I've known Pat Chambers for a long time since he was a assistant at Villanova for Jay Wright. And, um, you know, I, I I can't defend what he said, uh, but it's not like he denied it or tried to rationalize it as much as he apologized for it. And I said, you know, I, I know all of these topics are, are delicate in the year 2020. Given everything that's happened in this country um, over the past several months, but you know, uh, if they' if he is sincere, and, um, and 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 aware of how wildly inappropriate it is to mention getting a noose um, from around somebody's neck. Um, obviously a minority basketball player if he's if he actually acknowledges I I shouldn't have said that I will never say that again and I'm trying to learn more about why I shouldn't talk like that or use those phrases like that's not the worst thing in the world the problem of course is that Penn State launched an internal investigation and they didn't limit the investigation to just how You know, Pat Chambers treated his players or spoke with his players. Um, They were asking, according to David Jones from pinlife.com, questions about recruiting irregularities as well. And so this seems to be the classic case of you don't want to do something that triggers an investigation because you don't know what. They might go looking for one thing and find something else that is more problematic for your career. It's something I've had several coaches tell me about the NCAA. You don't want them on your campus because they might come to your campus for one reason. Next thing you know, they found a B and C and the initial thing they were looking for is not even really the thing that's going to get you. Will Wade might be going through this at LSU right now. You know, the NCAA, uh, you know, the biggest item connected to Will Wade was the Javante Smart, the phone call, wiretap phone call connected to the recruitment of Javante Smart. So the NCAA starts asking questions. Well, now reportedly, you know, they they got a whole bunch of people in addition to Javante Smart suggesting that things outside of the NCAA rulebook happened. Whether Will were survivor or not, we'll see. But that is a case of, Maybe the NCAA started looking at one thing. And when they started looking at one thing, they believe they found a whole bunch of other things. That appears to be what happened at Penn State. Rasir Bolton tells his story. Penn State launches an investigation. They start asking questions. And then they end up with enough stuff where they feel like they have to ask their possibly and reasonably described as what mediocre coach for a long time, but somebody who did have that program respectable in recent years. Um, nobody wants to make a coaching change in October of any year, especially in October of a pandemic year with so much uncertainty elsewhere in college athletics. They clearly felt like, at best I can tell, they had no choice but to ask for his resignation. And Pat obviously, um, you know, uh, gave them that resignation earlier this week.
1: Yeah. It's it's pretty interesting trajectory for, for Pat Chambers here because he signed a four-year deal in 2018. After Penn State won the NIT championship, they, they took a step back in 2018-19. I think they went 14 and 18. He was on the hot seat after that season. They ended up deciding to bring him back. Last season, they go 21 and 10. They were poised to potentially earn a bid to the NCAA tournament, and it looked like you know maybe Pat Chambers was finally going to get you know, things back on the right track and things were kind of looking up. And now he's gone. Jim Ferry is going to step in as the interim coach. He has some previous head coaching experience. So hopefully that is good, but we did our big 10 projections earlier this week and uh, we projected Penn state to finish 12th out of 14 in that league. And so this is, this is obviously you have to downgrade Penn state. You have to downgrade Um, The fact that, you know, there's so much uncertainty with this program and their head coach is now gone.
0: The other thing here, as you point out, that Penn State is projected to finish 12th uh, in the Big Ten this upcoming season. Uh, Really, this could have just been like Pat Chambers is out at Penn State you know, five months before he would have been out at Penn State. Um, uh, Assuming they didn't wildly overachieve, it would have been 10 seasons, zero NCAA tournament appearances while recognizing last season could have been an NCAA tournament appearance. But this might just be a deal where um, they're they're doing in October what they were going to do in March, although they're doing it for different reasons in October than they would have ultimately maybe done it Come March 2021. Um, Either way, the Penn State job is open. Pat Chambers is out. And he did release a statement. And in part, it, it read this way. Anyone who has ever coached, especially at this level, knows the exceptional amount of energy and focus it takes to deliver each and every day. This has been an incredibly difficult year for me and my family. And we are in need of a break to reset and chart our path forward. So I'm taking a step back to prepare myself for the next 20 years, end quote now this might not be the biggest deal in the world but like that's not what happened yeah (laughs) he didn't decide in october you know i'm worn out this job has taken an incredible amount of energy and i'm just gonna take a break a month before the season starts and uh reset and then chart my path forward like that's that's not what happened He, he was told more or less resign or get fired so i i Listen, I, I've never been a college basketball coach who's had my resignation forced. Perhaps I would spin it this way as well. Again, it, not the biggest deal in the world, but I did notice that the statement was not a proper reflection of actually what happened here.
1: And there was no no mention of uh, the incident from earlier this summer with Rasir Bolton. There, w- there was no mention of an investigation. It was essentially hey, you know, we, we've had some great years. I'm riding into the sunset. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about that. Yeah, that's, it's, a, it's a hard sell.
0: Yeah, that, that's, that's not what happened. But uh, what, like I said, it's, it's not the biggest deal in the world, but it is something that I noticed in the statement and, and felt it was worth pointing out. So the next question connected to Penn State is this. Who should be the next coach of the Nittany Lions? Who should the Big Ten school focus on? And what kind of job is it? We're going to get into that next. But first, check this out. Visit RobertHalf.com today. The wait is over. The Shy returns with new episodes on Paramount Plus. What brings you to the Shy?
1: Opportunity.
0: Everybody get down! Walk right up to the sun.
1: A new rain is
0: coming to the south side.
1: Never should have sent a boy to do a woman's job
0: the shy new episodes may 10th visit paramountplus.com slash the shy to get a 50 percent discount off the paramount plus with showtime annual plan offer ends july 14th subscription auto renews restrictions apply so our dribble handoff item on friday asked the following question who should be penn state's next head coach um what we do if you haven't uh kept up with these dribble handoffs? so i, I actually enjoy doing these um I think the college football side started doing them. Then we started doing them on college basketball. We ask a question every Friday and uh, we provide our answers to David Cobb, you know, somewhere around 250 words Then he compiles them. And just like that, we've got Friday content. So um, as we are recording this on Friday morning, Kyle, I know you haven't answered your dribble handoff question yet. Shame on you. (laughs) David, David, David Cobb's probably looking for it right now. Cobb's coming after me. He's going to be, he'll be sending you a Slack direct message (laughs) any, any minute. Um, I did answer my, uh, my, I did my homework uh, assignment on Thursday night. And before I get into the person I actually identified as a reasonable person to, to focus the search on, uh, let's talk about what kind of job it is in a word. Difficult. It is one of the hardest jobs in any power five conference Um, right there with Washington State in the Pac-12. I think Rutgers probably in the Big Ten, maybe Nebraska also in the Big Ten, maybe Northwestern also in the Big Ten. A lot of hard Big 10 jobs now that I'm looking at it. Um, You know, it's a, a place where they've only been to four NCAA tournaments since 1965, just two since 1996. So all of these jobs are good jobs in the sense that you make more money than you probably ever thought you were going to make when you decided to pursue a coaching career. But reportedly Pat Chambers was only making $900,000, which surprised me because that's very low for a power conference, a power five um, job. So, let's combine these two things, hard job with no history of winning again, just four instantly tournament appearances since 1965. And it, it, you know, it's not, it's not a $2.5 million a a year job, no matter what. Like I remember when the Rutgers job opened a few years ago, Dan Hurley um, was a candidate for that job. And I know he struggled with it, not because he thought it was a better job than the job he had at the time necessarily um, but because the money was wild like they were going to throw millions and millions of dollars at him in private planes and everything else and i i know somebody close to him said dan you're going you'll you'll be a quote big ten coach you take this job you'll be a big ten coach and you will have life-changing money and you will travel on private planes and you will stay in nice hotels and you will be miserable because you will get your brains beat in. Like, don't think you're gonna be the guy to take Rutgers to the top of the Big Ten and especially to the top of college basketball. Like you, you're not nobody, nobody does that. You're not gonna do it. So have one more good year where you're at. And then I, I know people told Dan this, you will get a better job offer than the Rutgers job offer you're considering right now. And, of course, a year later, he gets the UConn job. So um, that was the type of, of situation that, that that Dan found himself in when the Rutgers job pursued him. And the only reason he was thinking about it is because the money was overwhelming. The money from Penn State, there's no reason to think it's going to be overwhelming. They haven't historically paid. And are they suddenly going to do it in the middle of a pandemic? Maybe. I doubt it. So hard job with limited resources my point being, you're not going out and hiring some c- candidate who's going to blow away um, your fan base. You might end up hiring somebody the majority of your fan base ha- has never heard of, which is fine. I'll go back to the Rutgers job. They hired Steve Peichel. I promise you that it excited almost nobody at Rutgers when the hire was made. You know, they start their search with Dan Hurley and they end up with Steve Peichel. But Steve Peiko was a proven winner, successful coach in the America East, somebody who was respected as a teacher and a basketball coach. And though the records won't jump off of the page in year one, year two, year three, in year four, Steve Peiko had a team last season that was good enough to go to the NCAA tournament. And they were selling out games at home, winning almost every game at home, real energy around the program. And now I have Rutgers, I think, 21st in the preseason top 25 and 1. In other words, Steve Peichel has shown the ability to do the, a hard job in the Big Ten. So if you're Penn State, why not try to replicate that blueprint? And that's why the name I submitted to David Cobb earlier today is John Becker at Vermont. Because the second Steve Peichel left the America East, the guy who's been running that league since then is John Becker. In fact, he's won every America East regular season title since Steve Peichel left Stony Brook. Um, Four regular season titles. He's won five now in his career at at Vermont. He's been the America East Coach of the Year four consecutive years. He's won 70.6% of his games as a Division One head coach. Um, his record in the past four seasons is 109-28, and 28, which includes a 59-5 and five mark. And so the point I would make is that at a place like Penn State, first off, you're not just going to go hire some already established coaching star. And I would shy away from hiring a quote-unquote recruiter Because usually when we call somebody a recruiter, what we're saying or what people are saying is the guy can really recruit. I don't know if he can coach so well, but, man, he can really get players. Well, the problem at Penn State is that you're you're never going to have better players than basically everybody in your league. Like I don't care who your coach is. At Penn State, you're not having better players than Indiana or Michigan State or Michigan or Ohio State or whatever. So you better have somebody who can coach. And really I think that's largely the history of – Bad jobs, hard jobs in power conferences like Washington State. I mentioned one of the hardest jobs in a power five who has been the successful coach there. Tony Bennett. What do we know about Tony Bennett? He could really, really coach. You better have somebody who can really, really coach at these bad jobs in these power leagues. And John Becker undeniably can really, really coach. Coach, You cannot hire somebody who's going to go out there and try to recruit at the level of Michigan State and Ohio State. That ain't happening. So hire somebody who you think can build, develop, and really, really coach. And it, John Becker seems like a pretty obvious candidate who can be reasonably described that way.
1: Yeah, and, and that's in part why I think Jim Ferry just being elevated to the interim job. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, he's he's got at least some coaching pedigree. He coached at Duquesne prior to joining Pat Chambers' staff at Penn State. Um, at five in five seasons at Duquesne, he was sixty and ninety-seven, so not great. Uh, he was fired, um, but he called, he also coached it at Long Island. He made two NCAA tournament appearances before Duquesne hired him, so he's at least shown that he can potentially do more with less as a coach and maybe maybe Jim Ferry ends up working out this is a pretty low risk uh, reward type of situation for Penn State where they already have someone who is in the program that are probably not going to have to pay him like they probably will assuming they go out and get another coach Um, a guy who's familiar with the program obviously and has some coaching experience so for all those reasons I think that makes a lot of sense in addition to the fact that it is currently October 23rd, and you're probably not going to get the coach that you want.
0: Listen, uh, promoting Jim Ferry to interim head coach under these circumstances is obviously sensible. I mean, you know, it is October 23rd. The season is scheduled to start on November 25th. Like, what else were you going to do? Um, You know, we had talked about on a recent podcast, if the Wichita State job were to open right now, Obviously, also not in an ideal time. You know what should Wichita State do? And they would probably also just promote from within an interim. But I had made the suggestion that maybe you just take Greg Marshall's contract again if this job opens and offer it to John Beeline, who's unemployed, and and just see if he wants to come take over your program right now, coach Marshall's team, and expedite the rebuild. Well, the different the reason I would say at least try that at Wichita State and don't even think about it at Penn state is because which I think is a good job. It's a, it's in a worse league, but it it's a much better job. They pay a lot more. Um, the fan base is more passionate, which I recognize can cut both ways, but still I'll chalk it up as a good thing. And it's, it's a top four job in a, in a top seven league, whereas Penn state's a, a, a bottom two job in an incredibly difficult league. And they don't pay the type of money that Wichita State pays. So I, I don't think Penn State could go out right now and actually make a run at somebody like John Beeline. He will not take that job. And I don't know that he would take the Wichita State job, but you could at least um, you know, make him tell you no for a whole lot of money. And also, I had a, a coach in the profession suggest this to me as it relates to John Beeline at Wichita State. You know, John's son, Pat, who was a head coach, at the division 1 level had to resign you know for reasons that have nothing to do with basketball and not every school that is going to pursue John Bline under the assumption we agree that schools are going to pursue John Bline either right now or next March April not every school that would hire John Bline would allow him to bring his son on staff Wichita State probably would. They don't care, <laughs> you know. Like, like, so that could be another incentive for John. Like, hey, here's a top four job in a top seven league that pays a lot of money, and they will let you restart your son's coaching career. Um, It's just a, it, it's a thing that you can throw into the pot if you're trying to get John Beeline to pay attention to you. So I do think if the Wichita State job open right now, you could maybe make a run at John Beeline and if not promote from within an interim and then do whatever you're going to do in March, April. I don't think that's realistic for Penn State. So promoting Jim on an interim basis makes a lot of sense. And by all means, like if he proves um, capable of doing the job, And does it well? If you want to consider him in March, April, then I I wouldn't object. Um, I'd be surprised if it goes that way, but I I wouldn't personally object. Remember, you know, when Butler promoted Chris Holtman from within after Brandon Miller uh, resigned, uh, nobody – I don't want to say nobody, but most people didn't think Chris Holtman was going to be the next head coach at Butler, who becomes the eventual Ohio State coach, but we saw how that story played out. So sometimes the interim coaches do get a full-time – a full-time opportunity, but I'd be surprised if that happened here. I would assume that Penn State has a a season similar to what is projected, finishing near the bottom, if not at the bottom of the Big Ten. And then they open their job up and pursue the best candidate. And again, Listen, there's a lot of people to to go look at. But the one I submitted, it's the only reason I brought him up. The one I submitted for the double handoff was John Becker at Vermont. By the way, I went and looked this up last night. Six of the past eight America East titles have been won by either Steve Peichel or John Becker. Steve Peichel is now doing well in the Big Ten with a hard job. My argument is just why not let the other guy, John Becker, uh, join him in the Big Ten with a hard job, and see if he can't replicate some of that success. Before we get out of here, um, another, I guess, big development, certainly notable development this week, um, originated in Lexington, Kentucky. Wake Forest transfer Olivier Saar and Rhode Island transfer Jacob Toppin are both now eligible at Kentucky. The school announced it uh, a couple of nights ago. So I moved the Wildcats up to number 13 in the top 25 and one, one spot behind Tennessee. Before we get into what this means for Kentucky and the SEC in general, let me ask you this, Kyle. How good do you think Olivier Saar is going to be at Kentucky? We we don't need to debate whether Kentucky should have taken him and whether he'll help. I think everybody agrees they should have taken him and that he will help. How good do you think he's going to be?
1: I think he will be a starter for Kentucky. I think he will be all SEC caliber good um and i think he'll be he'll be serviceable i don't think he's going to be kentucky's best player uh but kentucky really needed help in the front court and you're adding a seven foot 255 pound transfer from wake forest who has experience at the major conference level was was really really good at wake forest um and and you're plugging him into a spot where you needed help so how good is he going to be? I, I think he's going to be really productive for Kentucky. They, they needed size in the front court. They needed someone who can score. They needed someone who could rebound and block shots, and he can do all of those things. Last season, Olivier Saar was top 10 among all ACC players in league play in defensive rebounding rate, offensive rebounding rate, true shooting percentage, fouls drawn per 40 minutes, and free throw rate. That's according to uh, Ken Palm data. So he's a, he's a very efficient big man on both ends of the court. He runs the floor. Well, he he's a very athletic big and, you know, Kentucky lost Nate Sestina, EJ Montgomery, Nick Richards from its front court. Only Keon Brooks is back from, from that, from that group. So he, he, he fits a need, obviously Kentucky needed help. And I think he's gonna be very productive this season.
0: I, I agree. I, I think, He averaged 13.7 points, 9.0 rebounds uh, at Wake Forest last season. Team finished 13 and 18. Do you think he'll average 13.7 points and 9.0 rebounds? Uh,
1: I'll take the under
0: on both. I would take the under on both. I would take the under on both. Um, This is – there's a recent history, and I plead guilty to this myself, of watching guys who actually produced – at the power conference level. And then they transfer to a better program and we assume, ooh, ooh, I mean, all America stuff. And it just doesn't happen. Whether it was Reed Travis going from Stanford to Kentucky, Carrie Blackshear going from Virginia tech to, uh, Florida, you know, they, they both were fine players, but neither of them lived up to the expectations people like us set on them. Set upon them, um, entering the the their their seasons at, at you know for Re Travis Kentucky and and uh, for Kerry Blackshear at, at Florida. And I wonder if this won't be the same thing. Like Olivia Sarr is a useful piece. You 100 percent take him if nothing else. He adds somebody who is already produced at the Division One level who is older. Like that uh, Kentucky needs that, but. Do I think he'll match his production at Kentucky that he had at Wake Forest? Maybe, but I would probably bet against it. Um, Do you think he'll be a top three player at Kentucky? I do. Yeah, I do. I could see him being a top three player. Like Like number three. Yeah. I could see him being Kentucky's third best player. And so I guess I would say this. If you're John Calipari, you're thrilled to have him. You just yeah. added an a older veteran presence who is going to be your third best player. So, awesome. Here's the thing. We don't usually get excited about teams' third best players, right? Not often. So, you know, it, it, it is what it is. So, I guess that would be my rationale for not moving Kentucky too much in the top 25 and one like I had, him, um, I believe, 15th in version 26.0 and then the news breaks Wednesday night that Olivier Sar and Jacob Toppin are both eligible. And though listen, I I love Jacob Toppin. He's not Obi Toppin. You know, he averaged five points in 18 minutes a game at Rhode Island. So I don't know that he's going to have an immediate impact at Kentucky, but he's another body and he has played at the division one level. So y- you take him same same for the, some of the same reasons you take Olivier Saw. but I, uh, I had Kentucky 15, the news breaks that they're both eligible and I got Kentucky fans tweeting me. So then the, Kentucky in the top five now. And I'm like, no, I mean, I mean, they might end up being one of the five best teams, who knows, but I moved them up two spots to 13. There's still one spot behind Tennessee. Um, I don't know that he moves the needle for them that much could be wrong, but I don't know that he moves. I don't know that. He makes Kentucky wildly better on paper than what I think Kentucky is going to be. I I had him as a top 15 team. Now I have him, I guess, as a top 13 team. I had him as a team projected to finish top two in the SEC. Still have him right there. I got Tennessee winning the SEC. You've got Kentucky. Play the role of Kentucky fan. Why do you think Kentucky finishes higher than Tennessee in the SEC standings?
1: Oh, I, I believe that. I think Kentucky from top to bottom is just a more complete team. I think they're more talented than Tennessee. I think it's reasonable to move Kentucky up two spots. Now, I, I don't think I'm going to make a case that they should be in the top 10. Um, but they, you know, go back to the point that they needed front court help, they needed a guy like Olivier Saar to fill a role in the front court. That was the the huge glaring weakness on that roster that they were really missing. And you get that guy eligible, and you suddenly have less question marks coming into the season. B.J. Boston, I think, is going to be one of the most talented freshmen in the country uh, next season. A guy who could potentially lead them in scoring. Um, you know, I, I, again, I think Olivier Sar is your second or third or fourth best player, and that's fine. I don't think he's going to be a superstar. But I think he's going to be very productive, and he's a guy who comes in right away, has experience, and I think takes Kentucky up a notch considerably to the point where I'm comfortable right now saying Kentucky is a better basketball team than Tennessee.
0: The thing I like about Tennessee is that they have – I don't want to say perfect, but a nice blend of experience – and talent, high-end talent. Like, they got two – they now have three five-stars on the roster, and two of them are projected as one-and-done first-round picks. And then they've got experience in the program, most notably, I think – I actually voted John Fulkerson preseason as player of the year. Like, I don't think anybody else did it with me. I, If you look at what he did – Late last season, he was posting big numbers, big numbers for a mediocre team, I acknowledge, but he was really playing. And now you add a couple of five-star first-round picks to a team that's got experience, and Rick Barnes has obviously got a long track record of of, of winning, you know, relatively big. Um, I've got Tennessee uh, slightly ahead, and I mean, as slightly as you can have them. I, I have Tennessee 12th in the top 25-1, and 1, Kentucky 13th, but, um, you know, if we look up in January and Kentucky's the better team, th- that won't be the most shocking thing in the world. But I really like the mixture of high-end talent, NBA talent, and experience that Tennessee has. And that's why I would give them a slight edge over Kentucky because Kentucky doesn't have that mixture. Like, Olivier Sar helps, and Jacob Toppin helps, but they still are going to be wildly reliant on freshmen And first-year players. And the truth is, though, almost all of John Calipari's teams at Kentucky have been very good. um, His best teams have been built more like that Tennessee team is built. Um, John said three teams at Kentucky secure number one seeds in the NCAA tournament. 2010, 2012, 2015. And... Every one of those teams had something in common, which is one-and-done freshmen who were awesome, but also non-freshmen who played big roles on the team. In 2010, like everybody remembers, John Wall and DeMarcus Cousins, and you should. They were awesome. Eric Bledsoe. For the top seven players, for the top seven scores, I should say, on that 2010 team were non-freshmen. Patrick Patterson, junior. Darius Miller, sophomore. DeAndre Liggins, sophomore. Darnell Dotson, sophomore. 2012, everybody remembers Anthony Davis, Michael Kidd-Gilchrist, Marcus T. You should. They were awesome. Three of the top six scores on that team, non-freshman. Deron Lamb, sophomore. Darius Miller, senior. Terrence Jones, sophomore. 2015, which is, according to Ken Palm, the best John Calipari team ever, even though it didn't win the national title. Everybody remembers Carl Anthony Towns, Devin Booker, Tyler Eulis, You should. They were awesome. Four of the top seven on that team, scores were non-freshmen. Harrison Twins, both sophomores. Takari Johnson, sophomore. Willie Colley-Stein, junior. If you are trying to predict that a John Calipari-Kentucky team is going to be awesome, you usually need to start by suggesting – at least half of the best players on this team are going to be non freshmen And I just don't know that that's going to be the case at Kentucky this season. It doesn't mean they can't still be great. I've got them preseason top 15, but this is not the way John's best teams have been built. The way this team is built. It's not the way John's best teams have been built.
1: Yeah. And and we'll see, you know, this is, this is perennially the Kentucky case is how, how quickly can these freshmen acclimate themselves and, um, I have a lot of confidence in BJ Boston just being awesome. I think he's going to be uh probably their best scorer and and one of the best players. Um but you know I, the other freshmen that are coming into this class this season are not the same caliber as the John Walls, the Anthony Davises uh that have come through Kentucky in years past. And and maybe one of them surprises me. Um but yeah, I think if 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 you're going to argue against Kentucky and how dare you? <laughs> arguing Kentucky Wildcats. Uh, that, that is the case, is that, you know, they're, they're not um, necessarily all that experienced. They don't bring that much back. And yes, they have a few transfers that could make an impact, but this freshman class isn't the same caliber of freshman class that, you know, in, in years past has really benefited John Calipari um, immediately. So we'll, we'll see kind of how that shakes out. But uh, I'm, I'm a little bit more optimistic about Kentucky's prospects, than you are um but still i think we should temper ex- expectations and think that this is a borderline top 10 team who could outperform that but uh right now it, it doesn't look like a, a top five team that uh, that maybe some people think they are
0: you make a good point here and i'll wrap i'll wrap with this kentucky's like i think most people on a surface level they look at kentucky's class and they go "Ah, oh, it's ranked number one in the country it's another top ranked class and it is it's the best class in the country according to 24 7 sports it is not like Kentucky's other top-ranked recruiting classes. In fact, you know what it looks like? Memphis's top-ranked recruiting class. Mm-hmm. Kentucky's class is great, ranked number one. They only got two top 25 prospects, BJ Boston, who I agree is gonna, should be awesome. Like We also had to turn in, I think yesterday, our ballots for preseason player of the year, coach of the year, freshman of the year, first-team All-American, second-team All-American, third-team All-American. I had BJ Boston... Top three for freshman of the year. Yep, me too. And I had him as a third-team All-American. So I think he's going to be awesome. Terrence Clark, I've seen uh, on the grassroots circuit a lot. I think he's going to be really good. But that's the only; those are the only five stars in the class. Uh, Kentucky's class is two five-stars and four four-stars. Memphis's top-ranked recruiting class a year ago, it was two five-stars. James Wiseman, Precious Achua, and five four-stars. So this Kentucky class isn't one of those where it's like five five-star prospects. You know, John's done that before. This isn't that. This is two really high-level prospects, and then some other guys who, for being honest, should probably be not, you know, should probably turn into sophomores, yeah. maybe even juniors, perhaps even seniors. Can you win at a high level immediately with a roster built that way? Not as many five-star prospects as you're used to having. If anybody can do it, it's John and the staff at Kentucky. You bet against them, um, you know, If you want, I personally wouldn't. But if the question is, why do I have them 13th instead of third? That's why Um, I, 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 you look at the top end talent and there's some really nice pieces there, but this number one ranked recruiting class is not filled with as many five-star prospects as Kentucky's other um, top ranked recruiting classes have normally been filled with shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry, MF, and Teagle. Legend. Legend. Shouts Legend. to Larnell. And thank you guys for listening to the ION College Basketball Podcast. Once again, in the middle of a pandemic. If you enjoy it, please tell somebody about it. And if you're not subscribed already, please go subscribe anywhere you subscribe to podcast, including Apple Podcasts. I'd appreciate it. We'd appreciate it. Do that. We'll talk to you again real soon. Till then, take care.